Hello, and welcome to the Verse Verse Podcast. My name is Justin Thomas, and I'm really excited for our journey from Genesis to Revelation a couple of chapters a week. My goal is that you would grow in your ability to understand the story that the Bible tells as a whole, as well as your ability to read the Bible for yourself. I would love to connect with you on social media. You can find us at verse slash verse, all spelled out, on Instagram or Facebook. Thanks again for tuning in. Chapter 12, verse 1. The men of Ephraim were called to arms, and they crossed to Zaphon and said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house over, uh, burn your house over you with fire. Now, you may remember from last week uh, that Jephthah uh, is the current judge, and God has been using him to deliver Israel. And so here it's coming to, uh, to the end of that. Uh, and while he is finishing things off, here again comes the tribe of Ephraim. We've already seen this before. Earlier, Ephraim came and said, hey, wait a minute. Why aren't we involved? We're never really told why they have such an attitude about these things. But clearly the interest to the author of the book of Judges is that it shows once again the fragmentation between the tribes. Let's just recognize tonight that there are bigger fish to fry than a civil war. But as we've seen with Jephthah, in fact, as we've seen ever since Gideon, Lots and lots of opportunities to put the judge's flaws on display and the uh, opportunity that Ephraim presents to draw this out of Jephthah is significant. So notice verse 2. Jephthah said to them, I and my people had a great dispute with the Ammonites, and when I called you, you did not save me from their hand. And so interestingly enough, you may remember Jephthah already was accused by the king of the Amorites of taking land that belonged to him. And Jephthah goes, no, you're not understanding. You're not remembering history correctly. We see him do the same thing with the Ephraimites here. He says, look, it's not my fault that when I called, you didn't answer. Okay. This has been a problem, in fact, all the way back to uh, Barak, right? When uh, Deborah sends Barak out, uh, it is the Ephraimites who stay home. And so they've heard about it. But they don't come, and then now that there's victory, they, they want it to be known that they would have come if they could. They want it to be known. In fact, they threaten him. They say, we'd like to burn your house with fire. Uh, and so he says, I called you. You didn't save. Verse 3, when I saw that you would not save me, I took my life in my hand and crossed over against the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? So he reminds them here, look, I'm putting my life on the line to your benefit as well as to the benefit of my tribe. Why pick a fight at all? Verse 4, then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim. And the men of Gilead struck Ephraim because they said, you are fugitives of Ephraim, you're Gileadites in the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh. Okay, and so what happens here is before these Ephraimite messengers who apparently came armed Right? They want there to be some meat behind their threat. And so they come and they say, here's our army in mass. Why didn't you? And he says, effectively, hold that thought. 
he gathers his armies and he attacks the Ephraimites. On top of that, as we see here, he sends a constituency to cut them off at the river so that they cannot cross back into their territory. And so that brings us to verse 4. Then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim, and the men of Gilead struck Ephraim because they said, You are fugitives of Ephraim, you Gileadites, in the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh. Notice verse 5. And the Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan against the Ephraimites. And when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, Let me go over, the men of Gilead said to him, Are you an Ephraimite? When he said, No, they said to him, Then say Shibboleth. And he said, Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. Then they seized him and slaughtered him at the fords of the Jordan. So get the picture here. The Ephraimites are effectively routed, and they flee off into the country. And while they're fleeing, you know, scattering across, they block off the places where you would normally ford the Jordan River. And so they form effectively an ancient Israel TSA. Okay? So they're questioning everybody who comes to the river. And as you can imagine, an Ephraimite has no reason to confess that he's an Ephraimite. So they ask and he says no. And then they use a difference in pronunciation. You see, Israel's been in the land long enough that the way that they speak the Hebrew language is diversifying. And so the difference we see here is the difference between Sibboleth and Shibboleth, okay? So the S-H noise is the difference. And so they ask him to say this word. It's a relatively unimportant word. It's just a demonstration of pronunciation. And then when they lisp it without the S-H, they know that they're not a local, okay? It's like if you went to Spain and you talked about Barcelona instead of Barcelona, right? Okay, that's the difference that's going on here. Um, and so the big picture you need to get here is that, once again, this is not how it's supposed to be. In fact, notice the final count here. They seized him and slaughtered him at the fords of Jordan. At that time, 42,000 of the Ephraimites fell. That is no small portion. That's a significant number that Jephthah, in his own frustration and vengeance, and granted, because of Ephraimites' own arrogance, uh, because of their arrogance, this happens. And so then we get the close of the Jephthah story in verse 7. Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in his city in Gilead. Now, for the most part, verse 7 there matches the pattern that we've seen. And so we have how long the judge judged and then sometimes uh, a reference point for burial. But there is a missing piece from the formula. In fact, read the next uh, three judges here, which are rapid fire for the rest of the chapter, and see if you can tell what's missing. So verse 8, after him, Ibzan of Bethlehem judged Israel. He had 30 sons and 30 daughters he gave in marriage outside his clan, and the 30 daughters he brought in from outside for his sons, and he judged Israel seven years. Then Ibzan died and was buried at Bethlehem. Notice there that he uses marriage to extend his influence. That's what it's explaining when it says that he took wives from outside. That's not wives from outside of Israel. That's wives from outside his own clan to expand his influence. It's diplomatic marriage. Uh, but nonetheless, he's on the scene for seven years, and he died and he was buried. And then we get another one. Verse 11, after him was Elon the Zebulonite. He judged Israel, and he judged Israel ten years. Then Elon the Zebulonite died and was buried at Ajalon in the land of Zebulon. And then finally after him, Abdon the son of Hillel, the Piraphonite, judged Israel. He had forty sons and thirty grandsons who rode on seventy donkeys, and he judged Israel eight years. 
Then Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Parathonite, died, and he was buried at Parathon, now you know why he's called a Parathonite, uh, in the land of Ephraim, in the hill country of the Amalekites. So the pattern persists. They judge Israel for this many years, and then they die. They judge Israel for that many years, and then they die, with or without their sons and grandsons, with or without donkeys. But what's significant, if you go back to the beginning, if you begin with the first few judges, the phrase that we haven't heard in a long, long time is, and Israel had rest for X amount of years. So we have the authority figures, but none of the deliverance. Okay? And so we're seeing some decay in the value of these deliverers. They're in charge. They give a little bit of organization, but they don't bring about any known victories. They don't bring about deliverance, and they don't drive the enemies out of the land. And so our downward spiral is almost complete, and that brings us to Samson. And Samson is somewhat of a mystery. Okay? In fact, one of the things that I love about the story of Samson is that it revolves around riddles. Okay? Uh, riddles are actually relatively rare in the Bible, although the word that's used for riddle shows up in the book of Proverbs uh, and in Ecclesiastes. Sometimes it's translated a, a dark saying. If we looked for another proverb, or excuse me, another riddle in the Bible, we'd have to look at the end of Proverbs uh, when it gives us a really interesting one. But they're relatively rare. But Samson seems to love them. He almost speaks in riddles, as we'll see. But it's interesting to me because, in a sense, Samson's whole existence is a riddle. It's a puzzle. You can say with full confidence that Samson is the greatest judge in the book of Judges. The things he does are the most miraculous. The Spirit is the most present in his life. Uh, his, his story is the most exciting and at the same time, you can say with total confidence that he is the worst judge that Israel ever has. So he never leads an army at all. He never does what we saw with Jephthah or Gideon or Barak uh, or, or any of the earlier judges. Everything for him is intentionally personal. Here's another major difference between Samson and the other judges. The other judges, God raises up, they're already on the scene. He just says, I'm going to use you, adult person Gideon. I'm going to use you, adult person Jephthah, right? Even though you were born of a prostitute, I'll use you. It's going down the list that way. But here, we start a generation before Samson is born. We start with Samson's parents. And basically, we find uh, here in chapter 13 a birth narrative, okay? Now, you need to understand how often God begins significant things in the Bible with an announcement of a baby being born, okay? In fact, we can push it even more. It's not just an announcement of a baby being born. It's an announcement of a baby being born to an unlikely couple, okay? And so remember Isaac. God comes to Abraham, a man who is elderly and has a barren wife and no children, and says, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you a son. And over time, he clarifies, that's not going to be through adoption, that's not going to just be through you, Abraham, like Ishmael. This is going to be through Sarah, who at that point is not only still barren, but also past menopause. Okay. Think later on. Uh, in fact, we don't have to look much further. Isaac marries a barren woman. Jacob also marries a barren woman. There's a pattern here. God is trying to lay out the supernatural roots of this new thing he's doing in Israel. 
But if we move beyond the book of Judges, consider Hannah. Okay? The period of Judges, not the book of Judges, but the period of Judges begins with one final judge who's also a prophet, Samuel. But how does the book of Samuel begin? With Hannah, Samuel's mom, who is barren, right? And so there's a birth narrative there. And if we move forward, we get Elizabeth, right? In the New Testament, the mother of John the Baptist, also a woman without a child in her old age, and then suddenly, through the announcement of an angel, is pregnant. And then finally, it culminates, of course, with Mary, the mother of Jesus, who's not just barren, she's unmarried and a virgin, okay? And so this is a major, significant, reoccurring thing that God does. And each and every one of those marks a significant moment in Israel's history, a significant move of the hand of God. But as we will see, there are some things that are especially unique about this birth narrative. So notice chapter 13, verse 1. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. Okay, a long period of time. And notice here that, that that part of the pattern is here, and it's missing the next part. Remember, we've been going around a cycle. It's the same thing. Israel sins. God hands them over to their enemies. Israel cries out in pain. God sends a deliverer. Israel follows the deliverer as long as he's alive, and then the cycle repeats itself. But notice what's missing here. Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. He gave them over to the judges. And then verse 2, there was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. Notice here, Israel's not crying out anymore. In fact, we're going to find not just the Danites, but the great and godly tribe of Judah seems to be relatively okay with Philistine rulers. They just settle into it. They're done. They're not fighting back anymore. They're not interested. They're not even crying out. This is just life. And yet God still works. It's unfortunate that we had to stop between last week and this week uh, because you may remember that as it was going on with Jephthah, right before that, God says, that's it. I'm not going to do anything anymore. And yet he still raises up Jephthah, and then here he still raises up Samson. But notice the significance of what happens here. And so we have a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not borne children. Okay which is probably a frustrating thing. Now, we're going to discover here that although uh, this unnamed woman has suspicions about this angel of the Lord, the suspicions are that, she, that this stranger speaks for God, that he's a prophet. The idea that there's anything angelic about this character is unknown yet. So imagine you're out and about, and you encounter a stranger, and you're, the stranger says, hey, look, you're barren and can't have children, okay? It's not really great news until we get to the contrastive conjunction. But you shall conceive and bear a son. And so there's an announcement to an barren woman of a birth. And then it gets 
more extensive. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink. Now, we may understand that in a modern sense. Hey, you're about to get pregnant, so stop drinking alcohol. But this is something more than that. Notice, eat nothing unclean. So that would just be a pregnancy in Israel, right? They're not allowed to eat unclean food. But notice it goes further, verse 5. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. And so here we find out that the avoiding of alcohol and even the emphasis on avoiding unclean food is because from birth, in fact, from before birth, from conception, Samson is to be set apart. The word there for Nazarite just means separate. That's what the noun means, okay? He will be a separate one. And it's clearly pointing back to the Nazarite vow in the book of Numbers. But here's the difference between a normal Numbers Nazarite and Samson. The Nazarite vow was a vow, meaning it's something you voluntarily take on yourself. It was temporary. It was for a period of time, and once you fulfilled the vow, you would shave your head, and you would be able to enjoy the things that you were excluding in your life. But he is a Nazarite before he's born. He is a Nazarite for the duration of his life, and this set-apartness is so significant that even his pregnant mother is to fulfill the requirements of a Nazarite vow, okay? Clearly here, God has a plan for Samson, okay? He sets him apart. He says he's going to be dedicated, and then he gives the job description. He will begin to save Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Notice that little word begin. It's significant. He doesn't say that he will save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. In fact, the Philistines are going to continue to be an issue until uh, 1 Samuel will rout them in 1 Samuel 7. We'll come back to that later tonight. And then ultimately, under the hand of David, he'll kind of finally, with uh, Goliath, for example, and then later in his rule, uh, drive the Philistines out proper. But it begins here. God's move begins with soon-to-be-born Samson. Verse 6, Then the woman came and told her husband, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of an angel of God. Very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son, so drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. So she comes to her husband and basically explains the whole thing. I encountered this prophet, but he seemed to be more like that, more than that. It was an awesome experience, she says. And so, verse 8, Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we're to do with the child who will be born. And so notice here, Israel doesn't cry out, but we do find Manoah praying. And what does he pray for? He prays probably that the man of God would come confirm it to him because he didn't see this, you know, strange person who just told his barren wife she's about to have a baby but also he wants to know more about his son's future okay and verse 9 God listened to the voice of Manoah and the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field but Manoah her husband was not with her now that seems a little just a little significant to me because the angel of the Lord as we've seen throughout the book is this all-knowing 
possibly ever-present character, and yet when he answers Manoah's prayer by appearing again, he doesn't appear to Manoah, but again to Manoah's wife, and she's once again alone, okay? There is at least the possibility here that Manoah is relatively spiritually obtuse. He prays. He's the one who wants confirmation, but we can't really tell what his agenda is about, and consistently, he doesn't seem to get it when his wife does. In fact, Manoah's unnamed wife stands out as a relatively godly character in the narrative, a surprisingly godly character who knows a man of God and even, as we'll see in a minute, the angel of the Lord when she sees one and remembers more of how this whole thing works, what it looks like to be part of the Israelites more than anyone else around. And yet in the text she is unnamed, whereas Manoah's name is given. One of the things that I've mentioned throughout the book of Judges is that this is a specifically interesting book in studying gender. Okay. By far, we see both the high and the low of the treatment of women in Israel as capstones to the book, beginning with Caleb and his wife and ending, as we'll see, uh, with this concubine who is, uh, who is just devastatingly raped to death by an entire town of Israelites and then cut into 12 pieces to make, to, to make a message. Um, but in the midst, we see things going on, and one of the things we see significantly, and we see this throughout the Bible, is godly women with ungodly husbands. Okay. Think, of, uh, think of David, David and Abigail, this woman who's married to a man whose name, by the way, I believe it's Nabal, means fool. Okay. It's, it's just built into his identity. And he comes and he stands against David who's working on his behalf. And it's Abigail who smooths things over. In fact, David is so impressed that when Nabal dies, he takes Abigail as a wife. Okay. But here we have this woman. She seems to be in tune. Her husband does not. It's just left in the text. It's worth noticing, though. And so the angel appears again to the wife. So, verse 10, the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah arose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, Now when your words come true, what is to be this child's manner of life and what is his mission? And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. Again, we just see this disconnect. It's like the angel won't answer his question directly. He just wants to know what the fate of his son is, and he's like, everything you need to know, I already told your wife. Okay. And so he pushes again. Verse 13, uh, sorry, 14. She may not eat anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink or any clean, unclean thing. All that I've commanded her, let her observe. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, please let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, If you detain me, I will not eat of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. Okay. And so here he says, Let me just keep you a while, and I'll make you a meal. Now, even when we go back to Gideon, the last time we encountered the angel of the Lord, Gideon says basically something similar, and the guy says, Fine. When, when Gideon actually brings it, it's laid out like a sacrifice and it's received. It's kind of a surprise. But even when you go back to the story of Abraham, 
when these three angelic visitors come to visit Abraham right before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and give the final announcement that within a year's time, Sarah will have a baby. He puts together a whole feast and they eat with him. What's the issue here? Remember that biblically, eating together is significant. This angel doesn't seem to want to have whatever Manoah wants to put on the table. But more importantly, he has a point to make. And so he says, no, 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 no. Don't make me anything, but you should probably make an offering to the Lord. And so he says there, offer it to the Lord. Here we see, for Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. Obtuse again, verse 17. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, what's your name? So that when your word comes true, we may honor you. Now, once again, we don't even have enough understanding to, to know why he's interested in this. He, he states a motive. I want to be able to tell people who told me. But there may be more going on here. Either way, the angel's not having it. So notice how he responds. He says, why do you ask my name, seeing that it is wonderful? Okay. Now, the way we use wonderful in modern English basically means great. Right? It's a synonym for, for neat. Okay? The word here in the Hebrew, pele, means beyond understanding, okay? And so when the psalmist talks about how wonderful are your ways, it's not, God, I really like what you're doing. It's beyond me understanding. And so what is, how is that couplet repeated in the psalms? How wonderful are your ways and how are your ways past finding out, okay? That's the couplet. In fact, biblically, this word is significantly only used in all of its forms that either stuff that God does, wonderful things, or the person God is, the wonderful one. And so it's significant here that the angel of the Lord takes this as being his own characteristic, part of his own name. He says, why do you ask my name, seeing as my name is wonderful? Okay. Every time this word is used in the entire Old Testament, it solely belongs to God. For example, in the book of Isaiah, there's a prophecy, unto us a son is born, unto us a child is given. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. In the Hebrew, there's four titles there, each one a pair. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Okay? Mighty God is clearly a reference to God himself. Everlasting Father, or literally the Father of all eternal is clearly a reference to God. And so is wonderful counselor, because wonderful, Pele, is this word that's only ascribed to God. Okay? And so what's fascinating is when we finally get to understand that prophecy in Isaiah, Matthew tells us that the son is born, that the child is given, the one who's actually the mighty God, the one who's the father of the everlasting is Jesus himself. We've already seen this correlation between the angel of the Lord and the living word Jesus Christ in the New Testament. This is one of the reasons why we think this angel of the Lord is more than just an angel, but actually the messenger of the Lord, uh, the second person of the Trinity, the God who will eventually become flesh, Jesus Christ. But nonetheless, notice once again, he just... He's not having it from Manoah. And then again, verse 19, Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. That's the only place in the whole passage where Manoah seems to get it. Seeing my name is wonderful, 
and then the way he thinks about who he's offering this offering to is to the God who works wonders, the same word here. And Manoah and his wife were watching. Okay, they're just watching the sacrifice burn. This is most likely, uh, it says here, a young goat and a grain offering. So most likely this is a, a whole burnt offering. He's just watching it burn. And then, verse 20, when the flame went up towards heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. Right? That kicks it into high gear. Suddenly there's an identification here that this wasn't merely a prophet. In fact, they, recognizing that it's the angel of the Lord, uh, start to fear for their life, as we've seen consistently with the angel of the Lord. Verse 21, the angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord, and Manoah said to his wife, we shall surely die, for we have seen God. So once again, we see the significance of this character to those who have encountered him is, we've just encountered the divine. And so Manoah, like many other people, is, is fearing here for his life. But notice his wife's insight here. Once again, she seems much less obtuse than him. And so she logics her way through this and says this, verse 23, his wife said to him, if the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering in our hands or shown us all these things or now announced to us such things as these. She says, that doesn't make any sense. Why would he go through all the hassle of telling us about uh, what's about to happen and setting up the sacrifice? Uh, and, and clearly the sacrifice was accepted. If you look over the book of Leviticus, I'm not saying here that she's been studying the book of Leviticus extensively, but at least the embers of true Israelite religion still burn in this unnamed woman, not so much her husband. So, verse 24, the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. Now, the name Samson is a little bit of a mystery, but most likely his name comes from the word for the son, the Hebrew word for the son. In fact, we find out, we find out that the place where Manoah is living, I'm trying to find it, Anyways, early in the, earlier in the chapter is Beth, I'm going to say it's Shemesh. I don't remember if that's right. But either way, it's the house of the sun. Okay, it's very similar to Samson's name. There's really two options here. One is that there's some significance in his name that is appropriate or that somehow the worship of the sun god has incorporated into Israel and that's the state of his parents, that they still don't get it. Okay, either way, his name is effectively Sunny. Okay, so verse 25, the spirit of the Lord began to stir in him in Manahem Dan between Zorah and Eshtol. Okay, so there's this promise and now the spirit. We've seen the spirit come upon Gideon before. We've seen it in the judges. But here we see the spirit stirring, beginning to stir, starting a work. And we get to chapter 14. Samson went down to Timnah and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. Okay, so he's traveling to a local town, and there he sees some Philistine residents and a woman who he wants to take as a wife, and so he comes to his parents to start the marriage contract, to start arranging the marriage. Now notice how his parents respond. Verse 3, his father and mother said to him, 
Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go and take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? They go, hey, wait a minute, that's crossing a national boundary. We're not supposed to intermarry with the tribes. But Samson said to his father, get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. In other words, he says, I don't know, she seems fine to me, right? Don't, don't read in this that she's just attractive enough for Samson. We're going to hit this phrase again in Judges multiple times. The idea here is not that he's only thinking uh, you know, through physical attraction, it's that to him, this is fine. There's no problem with dating. Now remember, what is Samson? From birth to death, a separate one. And now he's breaking a boundary, not just a, not just a boundary of his own status, but a boundary of just being an Israelite. It doesn't matter to him. It's fine with him. And so later it's going to say that in those days in Israel's, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And Samson becomes the first encounter we have with that concept. So, verse 4, his father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he, being the Lord, was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. Okay. And so here, God is at work in this inappropriate marriage. Now, at first, that sounds like it might be a good thing. We're going to see it's really not. God uses the Samson that is. And the Samson that is is a mess. But God's in the midst of it already. In fact, it's really interesting. I may forget to do it tonight, but it's very interesting to watch the cause and effect from this single decision. Okay? Because it's going to spiral out, and it's going to come out bad for the Philistines. But the author just lets us in here and says... Just so you know, God is in this. He's going to do something. He has a destiny for Samson, and this is where it begins. Okay, at that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Verse 5, Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah, and behold, a young lion came towards him, roaring. Okay, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a lion jumps out of the vineyard onto the road, and verse 6, The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, And although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. Okay, so get the idea here. He's attacked by a lion, and most likely, this is the only way we can think of tearing a lion in half, what this looks like. He probably got him by the back back legs and just ripped the back half of the lion open. A significant act of strength. Okay. Now, David gets applauded later for killing a lion with weapons. But Samson does it with his bare hands because the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him. Now, we don't know at this point what Samson knows. We're told earlier that the Spirit of the Lord is stirring in him, but this is clearly a demonstration of what God has for Israel, what God has for Samson, right? God didn't call Samson to deliver Israel from lions. This is just a case study. It's a test drive, if you will. And so he does this, he tears the lion into pieces, but it says he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. So apparently he's alone with this happens. In verse 7, he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. Okay, Finally having a conversation with this woman just confirms him on his path. Verse 8, after some days he returned to take her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion, and behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. 
Okay, and so here's this carcass laying in the Middle East on the side of the road, and it's sunbaked to the degree over a couple of days that it's dry enough that bees end up setting up a hive in it. Okay, and so you have this dried out corpse, and in it uh, is not just a hive, but where there is a hive, there's also honey. Okay, verse 9, he scraped it out into his hands and went on eating as he went. Now, that's really problematic, okay? For one, it is just as gross as it sounds, okay? He is just eaten out of a dead corpse of a lion, okay? On top of that, he's a Nazarite. He's not supposed to be near a corpse at all. And here he is eating out of a corpse, Now, this is one of the pictures that some commentators suggest may be more than just an event. Like, maybe the true riddle of Samson is this, that basically we have this rotting corpse of a lion, but there is some sweetness in it. God is at work. There's something productive and even sweet, but it's not where you expect to find it. There's no justifying the corpse, but the most important thing here is, once again, we see right off the bat, Samson doesn't really care about his Nazarite status. It won't end there, but that's the first place. Okay, it gets worse. Look at verse 9. He scraped it out of his hands and went on eating as he went. And when he came to his father and mother and gave some to them, and they ate. If we want a verbal parallel with that sentence, where do we look? We look at Genesis 3, don't we? Eve ate of the apple, and she gave some to Adam, and he ate. Right? Remember, his parents were in on this whole Nazarite vow thing as well, at least during the pregnancy. Maybe more than that. But either way, this is still honey out of a corpse. He doesn't tell them that. He just says, hey, look, I found some honey. Would you like some? Right? But he did not tell them that he scraped the honey out from a carcass of a lion. It sounds like a prank show, does it not? Right? It sounds like there should be a hidden camera around If you can say anything about Samson, he has a twisted sense of humor. And so here this just happens and it's over. He's seen God work in his life mightily. He still doesn't really seem to care about what that might mean for his own behavior. Verse 10, his father went down to the woman and Samson prepared a feast there. For so the young men used to do. Now, when it says, for the, so the young men used to do there, it's actually giving us a window into something that we may not have realized. Okay, in traditional Jewish weddings, that takes place at your father's house, at the father of the husband's house. Here, when it says, for so they used to do, we're seeing how uh, Philistinized the culture is at this time. They've taken on their wedding ceremonies. In fact, As we'll see in just a minute, it may not just be the wedding that is Philistine style, but the marriage that is Philistine style. Keep reading. And so he he prepares a feast there, verse 11. As soon as the people saw him, they brought 30 companions to be with him. Now that's just weird, right? It's not his friends and family that come to the wedding, but a supplied 30 men. Some commentators suggest that these aren't so much friends as they are guards. Here's one of the big questions of the Samson story. Close your eyes with me for a second and picture Samson. What do you see? Do you see a big, bulky Schwarzenegger type? Because that's not actually how the story reads. The Bible, when we encounter surprisingly large men, usually mentions it. Think of Goliath, 
right? We're never given a description like that of Samson. We're going to come to see that people have a general fear of Samson's strength. But maybe at this point, it's visible, and basically these companions are actually just guards in waiting. But either way, they're all Philistines from the city of Timnah, verse 12. Samson said to them, let me now put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. Okay, so 30 linen garments there, that's a very basic garment, but the word that's used for clothes in the second one, that's your formal wear. That's what you would wear to a wedding, okay? And so this is two garments, a basic and a formal, from each of these 30 people. Actually, these are relatively good odds, okay? Either Samson's going to give each of them a new set of clothes, a total of 30 coming from him, right? The, the risk is on his shoulders, and all they have to do is solve a riddle, and they have seven days, the whole length of the wedding, to do so. Now, if you've ever read the great chapter in The Hobbit, Riddles in the Dark, right, where Gollum and Bilbo have this riddle fight, it's similar to what's going on here. In fact, it's more similar than we would think, because notice here what the riddle is. So verse 13, if you can't tell me what it is, then you shall give me 30 lemon garments and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, put your riddle that we may hear it. And he said to them, out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. Now that conveniently rhymes in English, but there is a, uh, a sound to it in the Hebrew. It's smartly put together. But we should be able to guess what he's talking about, right? Out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. He's thinking of the honey he found in a lion, okay? This is the riddle equivalent of when Bilbo asks Gollum, what's in my pocket, right? It, it's not really a fair riddle. How are they to guess this riddle? He's playing them, okay? How else are they to put this together? This is the most unusual combination of things, uh, and yet he poses them this riddle, and they think about it for three days, and they've got nothing, Okay? So, verse 15, on the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us here to impoverish us? Okay, they look at this and they go, okay, this is not going to work. And so they threaten Samson's fiance in the midst of their wedding. Before everything's been consummated, they're three days in and they go, okay, here's how this is going to work. You're either going to fix this or you're dead. We will burn you and your entire house, your parents as well. All of it we will burn with fire. So, verse 16, Samson's wife wept over him and said, You only hate me. You do not love me. You've put a riddle to my people and you've not told me what it is. And so he begins to nag her and, or she begins to nag him and question the validity of his love. We're supposed to be intimate. I should know all your secrets and you withhold this one from me. You've made this riddle a part of our wedding, and you haven't told me what the answer is. Okay, now notice he said to her, Behold, I've not even told my father or my mother, and shall I tell you? Now, actually, I don't think that speaks very highly of Samson's view of marriage, or for that matter, his view of his parents. But he just tries to keep her at bay, saying, Look, I haven't even told my parents, okay? But she won't have it. There's too much on the line, verse 17, she wept before him the seven days that their feast lasted, and on the seventh day he told her because she pressed him hard. OK, 
Okay, and so what's supposed to be a wedding celebration is just a constant bath of tears until he finally gives in. Remember that, because it's going to be a significant pattern in Samson's life. Okay, and so here's this strong man who will defeat all the Philistines, but he's constantly defeated by a woman. And so, uh, so he pressed him hard. Then she told the riddle to her people. And the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, what is sweeter than honey and what is stronger than a lion? Now notice they couched that language in a way as if they figured it out, right? What, when you say there's something strong, what could be stronger than a lion? And when you mention sweetness, there's nothing more sweet than honey. So this must be the answer. But he sees right through it. And so what does he say? He gives them effectively another riddle, although this one, the answer is very clear. For, clear. He says, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would have not found out my riddle. Okay? He says, the only reason you worked it out is because you used my wife to do the work for you. And he speaks of her not very kindly here by calling her a cow. Okay? But notice that riddling language. It's really, every time Samson opens his mouth, it's riddles. Okay? And then verse 19, the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him and he went down to Ashkelon and struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house. And so he loses the riddle fight. And so he goes to Ashkelon, which is a long way away, okay, about 50 miles so that it won't be traced back to him. And he just kills 30 Philistine men, takes their clothes, pays them off. And then he's such, in such a huff he doesn't finish off the wedding. He storms his way home. Okay? So notice verse 20. Samson's wife was given to his companion who had been his best man. Okay? And so we're going to see here, her parents look at this and go, well, I guess he's so upset he doesn't want her as a wife. And so they just sort of like, we've already had the wedding. The wine's already flowing. Why don't you marry her? And the wedding is over. Okay? Verse 1 of chapter 15, after some days at the time of the wheat harvest, Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat, and he said, I'll go into my wife in her chamber. But her father would not allow him to go in. Now, here's why we think this is probably not just a Philistine wedding, but a Philistine marriage. We know of a marriage custom in the ancient world which involved traveling husbands, where effectively cohabitation was not part of the deal. Okay? And so the husbands would go and live where they lived, and they would just drop by to have relations with their wife, but it was a distant relationship. In fact, my understanding is even in the modern world, not like right now, but in the last couple of hundred years, there were still Arab tribes that had traveling husbands. Okay? The Bible knows nothing about a marriage like that, right? For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Whatever that means, it clearly means sharing life together. It clearly means cohabiting. But Samson just shows up with a goat as a gift and says, all right, I'm, I'm here for what's owed to me as a husband. And the father says, no, you can't go in there. And then he explains, verse 2, her father said, I really thought that you utterly hated her, so I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please take her instead. And so notice, he explains, he's like, look, don't blame me for this. I thought, I thought you were done with her. I needed to marry her. She does have a younger sister if you're still on the market, right? Even that, he's probably just doing out of fear. But verse 3, Samson said to them, this time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. Okay, so I want you to notice right here, right now, the back and forth that happens in this text. 
Samson wants a woman. He comes up with a plot. He creates a riddle. The men figure out a way to solve it. And because of that, 30 men in another Philistine city die. Now they give away his bride. And because of that, what we're going to see constantly is the Philistines try stuff and Samson wreaks havoc over and over. The pattern is like a pendulum. It swings back and forth. And so here he says, all right, I don't know what I should say about killing 30 strangers for an issue was that, that was not their problem, but in this I'm clearly justified, he says in verse 3. This time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. So Samson went and caught 300 foxes and took torches, and he turned them tail to tail and put a torch between each, each pair of tails. Okay. Now, 300 foxes is a lot, and I assume that foxes are relatively hard to catch, but Samson will do anything, anything for a prank. It is possible, because it's the same word here, that this is jackals, and that would make more sense, because jackals are easier to catch than foxes, and they travel in groups, so it's easier to round up 300 of them, but there's a good reason to believe that this is foxes, and that's because a lot of ancient languages speak of foxes as torch tails. It's the only thing that explains what he does with the foxes when he takes them to and then ties a torch to their tail. So as they go running off, they're dragging a flaming torch. Now, first and foremost, this is incredibly cruel to the foxes, clearly. Samson doesn't care about the foxes, okay? He cares about revenge, but notice what it does here. So he puts a torch to each pair of tails, and when he had set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and set fire to the stacked grain and the standing grain, as well as the olive orchards. In other words, he's just after their cornfields, but the fire spreads into their olive orchards. Now, side note, olive trees take forever to grow. It's a significant thing to take out an olive tree. Okay. In fact, the olive trees that are in where we believe the Garden of Gethsemane is today, they've probably been there as long as the Garden of Gethsemane has been significant because of Jesus' prayer there. They're hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years old. Okay. And so he devastates their crops with this prank. Okay. Then verse 6, the Philistines said, Who has done this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he's taken his wife and given her to his companion. And the Philistines came up, and burned her and her father with fire, which, remember, is what they threatened to do. And so she betrays her husband, and she doesn't avoid the consequences. Okay. It continues here. Verse 7, Samson said to them, If this is what you do, I swear I will be avenged on you, and after that I will quit. Okay. Effectively, my paraphrase, oh yeah, right? You burn, you burn my almost wife and her father who gave away my wife with fire? All right, one more time and then I'm done, right? Verse 8, he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow and he went down and stayed in the cleft of the rock at Edom, okay? We don't know what hip and thigh means, but it's clearly awesome, right? It's clearly a major military, probably a wrestling expression. And so he just beats them up good. And then he flees to the cleft of the rock at Edom, okay? If we know where this place is, and it's likely that we do, it's basically a crack in a rock that only one person can get through at a time. And so he just effectively goes into hiding. This is his bat cave, okay? This is his fortress of solitude. 
He doesn't even know what to do with life, so he just flees. Verse 9, the Philistines came up and encamped in Judah and made a raid on Lehi. And the men of Judah said, why have you come up against us? Okay, pause. Remember that Judah is under the thumb of the Philistines, so they're paying tribute. The Philistines shouldn't be attacking. And so they raid Judah and they go, hey, wait a minute. What did we do wrong? Okay, and they said, we've come to bind Samson to do to him as he did to us. You see the cycle here? It's back and forth. Oh, yeah? All right, well, then we need our revenge. Well, I'm going to revenge your revenge, right? It's moving back and forth. And so they come to Judah and they demand Samson, verse 11, 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Edom and said to Samson, do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? This is not a good place for Judah to be. They don't understand God has a purpose for Samson. And they're so content with Philistine dictatorship, that they go, you're messing everything up. Life is easy under the thumb of the Philistines if we just play along, and you've gone and caused this mess for us. And so notice, uh, he said to them, as they did to me, so I've done to them. In other words, they started it. That's his only answer. But they continue, verse 12, they said to him, we've come down to bind you that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. Not we've come down to fight with you, We've come down to tie you up and turn you over. Okay. Samson said to them, swear to me that you will not attack me yourselves. Okay. That's his only worry. He says, as long as you're not going to kill me. And then notice how they respond, verse 13. They said to him, no, we'll only bind you and give you into their hands. We will surely not kill you. In other words, no, we're just going to give you the men who will kill you. That's their answer. But all Samson is looking for is he doesn't want to kill anyone of Judah. He's totally confident with what's about to happen. And so he plays along. In fact, notice verse 13. We will surely not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes. That means they're stronger. Brought him up from the rock. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that had caught fire and his bonds melted off his hands. Okay. And so here he's standing, and then I don't know if it's an act of strength or something more significantly miraculous, but the ropes are done. They're toast. They just fall to the ground. And he found, verse 15, a fresh jawbone of a donkey and put out his hand and took it, and with it he struck, literally he killed a thousand men. So he looks around for a weapon. All he finds is a jawbone, and we're told that it's fresh here. That means it's still carcassy. Okay. So once again, he's around a dead body. In fact, I forgot to mention it, but the wedding was clearly a debauched affair, okay, where he was drinking. And here we find him again around a corpse, but he takes this jawbone, and that's his weapon, and with it, he fends off and kills a thousand men. This is a significant story, verse 16, and Samson said, and here we get another riddle, with a jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, I've struck down a thousand men. Here's what you can't see in the English. Hamor is the word for jawbone, and it's also the word for heap. Okay? They're actually two different words. It's a homonym and a homograph. It's written the same. It sounds the same. It's a different word. And so he basically says, with the hamor of a donkey, hamor upon hamor, with the hamor of a donkey, I've struck down a thousand men. Okay? Doesn't that seem strange? 
If we had to find a comparison in contemporary his history, he's almost like Andre the Giant's character in The Princess Bride, right? Who likes to play the rhyming game, anybody want a peanut? He just, he just thinks in riddles. He speaks in these things, and he's so entertained himself with this pun that is literally drenched in blood. But nonetheless, notice here, Samson, thousands plus 30 plus whatever hip and thigh means, Philistines, zero. Okay. As soon as he finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone out of his hand, and that place was called Ramath-Lehi, okay, the heap uh, of the donkey. And he was very thirsty, and he called upon the Lord and said, You've granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant, and shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? Okay, so Samson sees that this is God's work, and he also realizes he's so parched from fighting a thousand men, he is going to die of thirst, and he cries out. Now, when it says here that he called upon the Lord, this is the same phrase that's been used throughout the book for all of Israel. This time, Israel doesn't call upon the Lord, but Samson does. And he calls out for water, and then notice verse 19, God split open the hollow place that's at Lehi, and water came out from it, and when he drank, his spirit returned, and he was revived. Therefore the name is Enhakor. It is at Lehi to this day. And he judged Israel in the day of the Philistines 20 years. Now, just a couple of things. First off, it's going to be 40 years that the Philistines rule over Israel. We already read that. It begins with Samson here. It ends with Samuel when he unifies all of Israel and they have the battle that leads to Ebenezer, right? This far, but no further, as they drive the Philistines completely out of the land. But it tells us here that he judged Israel for a total of 12 or 20 years, and then it picks up the story again in chapter 16. We've got just enough time to finish this chapter. So, verse 1, Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute and went into her. Once again, not very Nazarightly, okay? He tries to get a wife, even though she's a Philistine. It falls apart. This is some period later, and he stumbles across a prostitute, and he just makes, makes use of her services. Verse 2, the Gazites were told, Gaza is one of the five big Philistine cities. The Gazites were told, Samson has come here, and they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. They kept quiet all night, saying, Let us wait till the light of morning, then we will kill him. But Samson lay till midnight, and at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts, and pulled them up, bar and all, and put them on his shoulders, and carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. Okay, so they surround the city, lying in ambush. They're probably expecting him to come over the walls, because the main road is gated, uh, and it's a walled city. There's only one way in and out, and at night it's shut, it's barred. Probably this is a door covered in iron, okay? And the metal probably weighs more than the door itself, and the door is solid wood. And so they're set up for any option except the one Samson does. He just walks up to the door and just picks it up, rips it out of the wall, and then carries it. Now, if it means what it says when it says that he takes it to Hamor, or uh, sorry, when it, uh, it says here that he takes it to Hebron, that's a significant distance, almost 30 miles, okay? Once again, Samson will go any distance for a prank. Building a door like this is a significant expense. If they want it back, they're going to have to bring it back, okay? 
When I was in college, we got really bored one night, and we had a leftover mattress. It just, we, we weren't using it, we didn't know what to do with it. So we had a friend from high school, and we decided we would drive all the way back from college, 30 minutes drive, with the mattress in our car, and then we would shove it under his van and drive back in the middle of the night, okay? I don't know what he did with that mattress, we never heard. But whatever he did, he didn't return it, okay? Because we, we traveled, you know, 30 minutes time in the middle of the night to pull off this prank. That seems to be what Samson does here. But some suggest that the way we should read that is the hill that is facing Hebron. In other words, in the direction of Hebron, the first hill he came to. Either way, he still carries this thing all the way up a hill. Okay. But see how the pattern is repeating here? Samson is being his debauched self. He's doing it fragrantly in a Philistine city. They try and get the best of him, and it ends up being to their deficit. Okay? Verse 4, after this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistine came up to her. Now, notice who starts this little conspiracy here. The lords of the Philistine. Okay? By this point, Samson is public enemy number one. And they've got to figure out a way to deal with him. This is a national priority. And so they come together, all five of them, and they go, all right, he's got a Philistine girlfriend. Let's talk to her. Okay. So uh, here uh, they say, seduce him and see where his great strength lies. Here's another reason why I think Samson wasn't significantly strong looking. Because they're wondering what the secret sauce is. They know there's something different about Samson's strength. It's not just that he's a big guy. He is impossibly strong. There's got to be a secret. And so they know the only way they can handle him is to deal with the secret. And so seduce him, see where his great strength lies, and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him, and we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. That is one of the biggest payouts in the entire Old Testament. That is the difference between not wealthy and the most wealthy, okay? If you divide this between, um, between the five lords, each of them give 1,100 pieces of silver, right? That's 5,500 pieces. This is upwards of 100 pounds of pure silver, okay? Set for life is what we should read here. Um, the cost of a slave was 20, 20 pieces of silver. You could literally build a workforce for this amount of money. That's how much they want the problem solved. So, verse 6, Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. Do you see the pattern here? Samson's constantly drawn to these foreign women. They never have his best interest at heart. And now one's once again looking for secrets. Last time it was the secret of the riddle. This time it's the secret of his strength. Verse 7, Samson said to her, If they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, then I shall become weak like any other man. He's clearly making this up. He's just playing with her. One of the things that's hard to tell here is if he's just dumb when it comes to women or if he's just that confident that he's got nothing to lose. And so he toys with her. And he says, look, just tie me up with bowstrings and then nothing's going to happen. And so notice what happens, verse 9. She had men lying in ambush in an inner chamber and she said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson, but he snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. 
So he falls asleep in this inner chamber. She ties him up just like he said, and then she springs this trap on him. But before all the men move in, he just snaps the bowstrings right off his arms, which, side note, significant. In fact, the, the word here, once again, speaks of tallow. It speaks of carcass, okay? This is made out of animal innards, and they're fresh, okay? It's not something that Samson should be dealing with. Verse 10, Delilah said to Samson, behold, you've mocked me, and you've told me lies. Please tell me how you might be bound, how you might be bound. Now, at this point, all of us should be going, wait a minute. Last time you told me you wanted to know, you actually tied me up. It was good that I lied to you, but not Samson. He plays along again. Verse 11, he said to her, if they bind me with new ropes, that have not been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Now, this is what Judah did, and it didn't work. But he just makes it up. So verse 12, Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And the men lying in ambush were in the inner chamber, but he snapped the ropes off his arms like a thread. Then Delilah said to Samson, Until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If you weave the seven locks of my head with the web, and fasten it tight with a pin, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. If you weave my hair into your loom, then I won't have any strength left. Now, significantly here, this is less of a lie than the other ones. Now he's talking about his hair. By the way, that's the only part of the Nazarite vow, apparently, that Samson has kept. He's never cut his hair since he was born. Which is why, by the way, that she's able to weave it into a womb while he sleeps, okay? Because it's long, okay? And so he says this, and then while he slept, verse 14, Delilah took seven locks of his head and wove them into the web, and she made them tight with the pin and said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson, but he awoke from his sleep and pulled away the pin, the loom, and the web, okay? He just jumps up, and then he just yanks his hair out, and the whole thing falls to pieces, Verse 15, and she said to him, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You've mocked me these three times. You've not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him, same word from his first almost wife, when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. And he told her all his heart. And he said to her, Razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like other men. And so she's pressing and pressing and weeping and weeping, and he finally breaks down, and he says, okay. And he tells her the whole deal. Verse 18, when Delilah saw that he had told all his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, come up again, for he's told me all his heart. So notice that. This time, they're not even lying and waiting. They've given up. And she says, no, 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 I've got it this time, and I know I have it. This is the one. Okay. Verse 19, she made him sleep on her knees, and she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. And then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I'll go out as other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. There are a lot of scary verses in the Bible. This is a significantly scary one, right? This is the equivalent of Samson being a beat cop, you know, in, in murder, murder neighborhood capital Chicago, and leaving the house without his bulletproof vest and not realizing it. He's going into the same battle he's always been, 
but he's disarmed and he doesn't know it. And so he goes out, he rolls up his sleeves, but verse 21, the Philistine seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles and he ground at the mill in the prison. And so he's defeated and they blind him and they enslave him to work at the mill. But, verse 22, the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. And that sets, up, sets us up here for the final episode. Now the lords of the Philistines, verse 23, gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god, and rejoice. And they said, our god has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. They see this not just as a physical victory, but a religious one. And so they worship Dagon for delivering them from this enemy, Samson, and delivering their enemy into their hand, verse 24. When the people saw him, they praised their God, for they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hand, and the ravenger of our country, who has killed many of us. You know what the other scary verse to me is in the Old Testament? It's when Nathan speaks to David and he says, Because of you, the Gentiles will blaspheme. He says, David, because of your behavior, the nations will go, I knew the God of the Bible wasn't real. But Samson's really in the same boat. Because of his behavior, his constant antics, because of his selfishness and his unwillingness to maintain his vow, because he can't stop and keep his hands off of foreign women, everybody praises and applauds this false God. But the story doesn't end there. Verse 25 When their hearts were merry, they said, Call Samson that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he entertained them, and they made him stand between the pillars. Okay? Now, we still have some of these Philistine structures today, so we generally know what this looks like. And effectively, they had this balcony that was held up, a second story, by these wooden pillars on bronze bases. If you can, think of a very small Colosseum. Okay? And so everybody's sitting up in above looking at this down below area and on the edge of it are these pillars holding up this second story circle. That's the setup here, okay? And so they made him stand between the pillars. Why? Because he's blind, okay? So he stops there and Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, let me feel the pillars on which the house rests that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women All the lords of the Philistines were there, and on the roof were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson was entertained. Now, that would make this temple significantly larger than the ones we found, but I also think we have good reason to believe that it's over-occupied, right? Because Samson is coming out to entertain them. Because the great strong man that they're mocking, you know, uh, is here. And so they're excited about this. It's overcrowded. Everybody is there to see, you know, this circus act, blind Samson. Verse 28, then Samson called to the Lord. Again, we see him cry out. In fact, here's a repeated pattern. When Samson gets into a mess, he cries out to the Lord. I'm dying of thirst. God delivers him. And here he calls to the Lord and he says, O Lord God, please remember me. And please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. Even here as he cries out to God, it's not God's glory he's concerned about. It's not Israel's deliverance he's concerned about. It's vengeance. Just just one more time, give me strength so that I get the last laugh. I may be blind, but they are going to die. 
But, verse 30, Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Oh, sorry. Um, 29. Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it, so the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he killed during his life. Then his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him and buried him between Zorah and Eshtal in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He judged Israel 20 years. And so he does get the last laugh, and there's this final and great victory, more than he ever did. When we ask, why Samson? We also need to ask, why is Samson the last judge? And here's what seems significant to me. Samson is a perfect parallel for Israel. Israel, born of a miraculous birth and separated unto God. Israel, who has the spirit of the Lord in their midst, and Israel, who constantly commits spiritual adultery and entertains foreign women. In this story, Israel doesn't cry out to the Lord, but Samson does, and it's in his own self-interest. Okay. Samson is a perfect reflection of where Israel has got. And so God uses him, and he uses him in a miraculous way, but he also stands in as a parallel for Israel. In fact, there is a little bit of hope here. Even at Samson's last days, after all of his selfishness, after all of his failures, God is literally standing by and waiting for him to cry out. And we can't help but look at this and recognize that Isaiah speaks of a servant who will come. Not unfaithful Israel, my servant, but the true Israel, my true servant. And that servant also extends his arms, also cries out to the Lord and dies. But he dies for the failures of Israel. He dies to accomplish what Jeremiah and Ezekiel promised, that he says, it will come in the latter days that I will make a new covenant with you, and I will take out your heart of stone, and I will put in a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit in you, and you will keep my commandments. You see, Samson is not just a stand-in for Israel. He's a stand-in for us. But there was one greater than Samson, Jesus, who is also a Nazarite. Remember the words of Matthew? Who comes and faithfully does not break his vow, keeps, does always the things that please the Father, and still willingly and freely dies for the people of Israel and for us. Let's pray. Father, it's hard not to look at Samson and see a wasted life. But it's better to look at Samson and see uh, what, what a life is like without you. And, and we see, nonetheless, your goodness and your faithfulness. We cannot deny that you used Samson as a deliverer. But he could have been so much more. And on top of that, Lord, we, we resonate with where Israel is. We know what it's like to do, always do what is right in our own eyes. I pray, Lord, that you would just reinstill in us, even tonight, that heart of flesh, that you would write deeply on our hearts 
your law and that you would be our God and that we would be our people. And we thank you, Lord, that you sent Jesus to live the life we could not live, to die the death that we deserve, to offer us not just forgiveness, but your divine nature through your Holy Spirit to work obedience out in our lives, to graft us not just into the people of Israel, but into your own family and make us the children of God. We praise you, Lord, because we do not always honor you. We do not always follow you. Like Israel, we turn and go our own way. And yet through Jesus Christ, Lord, we can be forgiven and we can be restored. As Paul says, behold, I make all things new. Thank you, Lord, for your word tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.